Welcome to Season 6 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Passionate about leadership education? Want to expand your resource toolbox with practical strategies for teaching, learning, and program design? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Kathleen Gabriel, Professor Emeritus in the School of Education at California State University, Chico. Dr. Gabriel visited my campus a few years ago to share a variety of strategies for student success with our faculty and professional staff, and you all are in for a treat. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Leadership Educator Podcast. I am Lauren Bulla, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. And I'm Dan Jenkins, Chair and Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And we are both thrilled for this episode of the podcast. So today we're joined by Dr. Kathleen Gabriel, Professor Emeritus in the School of Education at California State University, Chico. Welcome to the show, Kathleen. Thank you. So this season, just uh, to recap a bit for our uh, listeners. So we're talking to educators and faculty developers who they might write, they might speak about teaching practices and higher education with different populations. They've authored popular texts, or they might currently host popular podcasts where they're discussing some of these trends and best practices in higher education. Um, some are from uh, various places in the university. They might be in STEM or education, uh, business, uh, but they're all sharing some teaching strategies that can be applied more broadly. And so, Kathleen, super excited to have you here and uh, had the pleasure of meeting you when you came to, to USM uh, as part of our Title III grant to, to speak with uh, with our faculty and staff and, and students uh, following the release, I think, of, of your first book, which was uh, Teaching Unprepared Students. Um, and um, had a had a great time with you. Had a I think we had a really nice dinner out one night, which was a lot of fun. And um, we we had an opportunity to really do some great things with with that grant money there. And so it's it's great to have you here on our podcast. And so I'm wondering if, in addition to what is on your your bio there, and maybe on LinkedIn uh, over at uh, Cal State <laughs> University Chico, what, what's maybe one or two things that our listeners could learn from you that's not uh, on your bio. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. You know, when, when you've taught as long as I have, <laughs> it's sort of like, man, what do I not want you to remember? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I, I think that um, uh, starting off as a high school teacher was great training because uh, there were so many different challenges with high school students. So as I moved into the college setting, um, my first experience was working with um, uh, at-risk student-athletes at University of Kansas. And I don't know if that is uh, clearly on my bio, but that was, um, I was brought in to help um, uh, specifically uh, if I could help some of the students who had arrived at, at campus unprepared for the academic rigors of campus. But at the same time, they were very demanding uh, in their athletic pros. So learning how to balance, um, the students were easy. It was the coaches. <laughs> I had to learn. That's not on my bio, but I have some pretty funny stories about uh, interactions in that field. And my kids have often said to me, mom, you should write a book at it. And I said, yes, but I'd have to go in undercover. (laughs) 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 I told all, but um, seriously, I think that uh, working with different student populations and different student centers, um, I did a lot of work at University of Arizona. Also, I don't think that's on my bio with the, with various, um, 
the African American Center and with the um, Chicano uh, Mexican American Center and uh, Native Americans. I worked, did a lot of work with Native Americans in Arizona. And now I don't I don't know that that's really spelled out in my bio, but it, it's certainly something that I felt has helped me not only as a teacher and as a person who shares teaching techniques with other faculty. Um, but it's uh, it's been an interesting journey and one that I felt has really enriched um, uh, both my consulting work and my teaching profession. I love hearing that. And it's funny, that should be like the first thing in your bio. So I, I, I come from an athletic background as well. I wasn't in, you know, athletic academic affairs, but, and I, but I definitely hear you on coaches. I got lucky. My first coach that I worked with at Florida state was a dream. I was in sports PR and he was a journalism major in undergrad. And so when I had to put him in front of the media, he knew exactly what to say because he had studied it while he was a runner at, 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 I think it was at USF or when he was, or at Florida, whenever he, wherever he was in undergrad. So I feel you on the coaches and the, the <laughs> that relationship. Um, but, but you know what, I, I, the Chicano part, the Native American part, the African-American center, you can see it in your work. And, and it made me think of before, you know, you even said that kind of, how did you get into this research? Because most people, when they're looking at college students, especially those that are unprepared, it's almost easier to write them off or to go overly statistical and like, look at all these data points or yeah. to, you know, to just say, you know, well, well, everybody isn't for college. And like, your approach doesn't seem like that. It's how can we make college work for those that want to be here? So kind of, can you tell us a little bit about how, how you got into this line of research specifically? Sure. And, and thank you so much for that, for that question. And um, I'm, I, I guess, you know, I'm going to kind of go back a little bit, Lauren, because when I was um, in high school, um, I was not a good student um, and, and people, um, I, I got into college on probation. I started off very unprepared. I had to learn how to learn in college. And um, at first, so just my own personal experience, I knew that by with, with different types of learning strategies and working with um, different people on campus. And when I started college back in the dark ages, uh, there were no tutoring centers or the, anything like that. You sunk or swum or you met with your professors. So then my own personal experience of growth and success um, uh, led me to look at also some of, um, when I became a teacher, other students who teachers had written them off, if you will, even in high school, like, oh, it's too late. Well, my first philosophy, it is never too late. And so when I got into college, uh, started working with college students and realizing what the, if you will, uh, dropout and or uh, flunk out, <laughs> it gets both. You know, some people pull themselves out before the grades come out. And I realized, wow, these are really talented young people who have the capacity, but may not have the background or may not have um, that opportunity in high school to learn how to learn or see what they can do. And why are we just skipping this in college? And as I looked into it, um, more and started looking at these different students, I realized a lot of these students, even if they were strong high school students, if you came to a place where you felt unwelcomed or unwanted, um, or people were writing you off, that just, you, you can just pull the rug out from young students so fast. And I went, this isn't right. And we really have to make college a place 
that, you know, that dream, like, oh, it, in United States, it's a dream. Everyone can go to college and change your life and be successful. Well, that's not true if you start three steps behind and people don't believe in you or or don't give you the kind of chance and opportunities, not, not just to have a chance, but then the support behind it. So that's where I got, I guess I'd have to say from my own personal experience and then just getting into uh, working with students, especially freshmen, started me on my path. I love that you shared that you're the third person that we've had that does research in education, higher education that has said in high school, I was labeled as someone who wouldn't make it to college. And so it blows my mind that, you know, we have folks now who we regard as, you know, contributing great research and, and not just research to read and discuss and critique, but, but strategies that we can pull from that to create the places that you want to see. It blows my mind that that's consistently been the narrative. Like Stephen, Brookfield mentioned it. I believe Richard Biotis mentioned it. Right, Dan? I'm, I'm not making this up. No, right? no, no. I tell you, I tell you if you're fabricating something, Lauren. So. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but it blows my mind that it's like you were told at some point you weren't going to make it. And now you're telling yeah. others or sharing others. Well, here's what the research says and kind of my experience says about how we can make it so that folks can succeed in these places, which I, it's a shift that we need in higher education. Well, and I, I think professors sometimes don't realize Um, the power that they have. And that's why my second book called Creating the Pathway to Success in the Classroom. I think sometimes it's easy as a professor who maybe most professors, let's just think about this. Most professors were very successful in college. They're, they're those of us who struggle. I mean, you know, or they, but think about getting to grad school. You had to have good grades. You get in grad school. You had to have good grades in your master's. You get to the doctorate. You've got to be, you know, you've got to be a strong student. And maybe you just forget what it was like back, you know, back when you were a little freshman or back when you were even in high school or back even when you were in junior high, you know, you forget about that. And it's important for us not only to remember it, but to share it with our students. So I, I have to, I have a really pretty funny story I want to share with you really quickly. I was working with a, with an, in an academic support group with some students and something came up and I said, well, let's, let's make some notes up here on the board that we're discussing. And so I turn around and and spelling has always been a challenge for me. And so I turn around and one of the students in my class from uh, American Sonoma, and he uh, just a fabulous speller. And I went, Polo, how do you spell this? And we spell it and across the room. Another student looks at me and, and he goes, it just, he stops the whole discussion. He goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you really are not a great speller. And I said, well, no, but I know how to use a dictionary and spell check and ask for help. I mean, these are strategies. You don't have to be a great speller, blah, blah, blah. You know, I go into my little speech and he just looks at me and stares. He slams his hand down on the desk and goes, you just give me hope. Oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. Everybody bust up laughing, including me. And to let our students know about struggles we've been through or strategies of how to meet these challenges is really important. And there you go. You just give me hope. Hope is such an important factor for um, our students. That's great advice. I So I'm currently working on my dissertation and I tell my students when I'm dodging my chair as well, or I say, sometimes I'm up at 10 o'clock writing, just like you're up at 10 o'clock doing your homework and sometimes I'll respond. So, so yeah, I, I don't always dodge my chair. I do make my meetings, but there are some times I, I know Dan is a, as someone who advises PhD students, well, you don't want to use that. 
No, no, but it's so funny because I mean the the approach that I took. I mean, I was, God, I was. I, I guess I'd say I was a good high school student, but I never really. I didn't have to study in high school. I I was whatever gifts I was provided made me a good high school student. I got into a big state university in Florida. I was a very average uh, undergrad. Like I did. Like I lost my. Right, future scholarship my first year. Like I couldn't get it back. I never got back over a 3.0 after my freshman year. Um, and I barely got into a private law school. Then I failed out of law school. And then I got my act together and uh, studied my behind off for the GRE and the rest is history. And I was a great grad student, but I was learning things. Like I never took an advanced math class in undergrad. I never took a research class in undergrad. Never took step. Like, so I came in, just had to learn research skills, had to learn statistics, had all these things happened in grad yes. school, but I was finally a self-directed learner. I was so much, I was so much more interested in extracurricular activities. Um, and not just, and not just the ones outside of the university, but actually more so the ones inside, <laughs> inside the university, student government and Greek life and service clubs mm -hmm. and like just learning, like, and I think I needed those life skills and the discipline that came from being successful in some of those things and to channel them into like, I was just so immature educationally in, as an undergrad. And uh, I, I don't know how I, I don't even know how I ended up with, with a, with a 2.9, um, honestly, like, um, but it somehow, somehow, some way. Um, and so when I teach my grad students, I share that and I say, look, like all of these some of the best faculty I had in grad school were faculty that said, we're going to use this book or these series of books because they all like um, one of the examples I use is like Cresswell's research methods books are loaded with like templates and how like how to types of guides. Like, yeah. and I always say, if I could do it, I'm like, these things are idiot proof. And, and I always say this is, I don't mean that in like a condescending way. I mean, like I had no research background. And if I can say the purpose of this project is to fill in the blank, like, and then there's 18 examples on the next two, yeah. like you can make a research question out of this. You can make a purpose statement. You can make, you know, and so it's just figuring out like, how do you speak, how do you speak these languages of someone who's at this next level? And then um, we were talking, we were talking with some students uh, with our, one of our doctoral cohorts on a zoom call uh, last week, cause we have a low residency program. So we don't, we rarely see them, but we check in with them. Um, a couple of uh -huh. times. And I said, you know what? And I never made this analogy before, but it cracked me up. I said, it's kind of like, I said, um, reading as much and consuming as much literature and things on your subject matter where you become the, you know, the penultimate expert in the world of your esoteric like area of research for your dissertation defense or whatever yeah. is like, the matrix where all of a sudden you've been plugged in and you're like learning some new like karate or ancient yeah. medieval history. And all of a sudden, like someone asks you a question about your research and all of a sudden you're spouting off all this knowledge. You're just dropping knowledge on everybody. And you're like, where did that come from? You know? And I felt the same thing happen when I started teaching research methods. Cause I was like, how do I know all this? Oh, cause I had fantastic faculty. I did everything I was supposed to do. And, but I I've learned how to learn you know, um, okay. at that yeah. level where I did not have any of those skills. Oh my gosh, as a, um, as an undergrad and I didn't need them in high school. So I didn't, I didn't learn them, you know, you know, and yeah. some, something you said, I want to, uh, kind of jump on too, that you had this textbook that you could go through and see the examples, kind of this hands-on thing. Mm -hmm. I know some of the latest trend is, oh, textbooks are expensive. So let's not use them. I'm telling you for students that are, um, learning how to learn that, that start college, without all of the 
discipline and the rigor. They need that textbook. Figure out a way. I say to professors all the time, use last year's edition that's been discounted. Get on Amazon. Find a way to make the textbook cheaper. But don't dump the textbook because I, all, every single student I've worked with, being able to flip back and forth, being able to look at the illustrations again, you can't do that on a little iPhone. You can't, and, and you're trying to manipulate material and understand it on a web page. Have you ever done something like, I just learned how to do Photoshop? Well, the directions are all online. So I'm reading one place and I flip back to the Photoshop. I, wait, wait, what were the directions? I finally just printed the damn thing out so I could figure it out. But I want you people to remember um, when we become experts, like you said, in any field, we forget sometimes how long it took us to master that and that learning curve and that hands-on being able to flip the pages, look it up again. Uh, I, I just really, everywhere I go and consult with, I say, please make sure that you even buy a couple of extra textbooks and put them on reserve so students can get to them or figure out a way to use last, the, the previous edition instead of the modern new edition so that, but it's it's just so important or start a fun at your, we started a fun at School of Ed and, and um, at Chico State where literally we're doing little fundraising projects and stuff for money for students who are having trouble buying their textbooks. And so I, I'm just really glad you brought that up because that hands-on textbook uh, flipping and seeing the illustrations, the templates, all of that is just so, so a big part of success for people moving to success in college. Oh, are you going to? We're going to highlight that piece. And I'm, you know, I'm glad you said that because I like juggle access, you know, like my students are work. Most of my students work. Most of my students are supporting their family. They will sacrifice the textbook, especially if they don't think that the faculty member uses it. And I love that you brought that up, like keep it because it can help uh, students stay organized and stay on time um, and, and do the assignments. And I think with, with my students, when I say, like I talk to them about student evals and I say, if nothing else, tell me if the, the reading materials or the book that I assigned was useful. And a few years ago, my students overwhelmingly gave feedback on the, I, it's a book called Group Dynamics for Teams. They said they liked the voice. They said the examples in the text were easy to read and they liked the fact that I used it. So I said, yeah. like, if I'm going to make you pay for this, rent it, buy right. it, whatever, then I am going, we're going to go to it for every assignment. And I'm not going to put up the contents of the textbook. I'm going to say on page 26, go to this activity and, right. and do this because a lot of their, their problem was they, they weren't opening the textbook. They could go half six weeks through and not touch the textbook. And I said, no, we're going to put this bad boy to work um, as well <laughs> as my, <laughs> sorry, I get excited about it as well as I, like our library is always pushing. They have a, in the textbook affordability project where they pair you with a, uh, someone from our teaching center and someone from the library. And if you forego a textbook, they help you find every resource to replace the topics as well as make sure they collect connect to the learning outcomes. So if you have like minimal time, they'll help you find resources. And my librarian actually found a textbook that I hadn't heard of 
that they could get a digital copy of in the library. And that was cheaper than the one that I was using. So even if you're like, you don't know about the textbook, try and talk to your librarian because they're great resources for being able to pull all of that, that information. And so, yeah. And so I also, the book I have, I tell students the first day, like kind of, I don't care how you get access to it or how you read it, but just know you're going to use it. And here's an example of where we're going to use it. Mm -hmm. um, and then I lovingly will get dramatic if they say, well, you know, you know, in the textbook, it talked about this in class. And I'm like, oh, like clutching my pearls, <laughs> sighing, like I make a huge production of it in class, just because I want them to know, like, that gives me joy that they're actually using it. And, and it's valuable. So I tell them, like, if nothing else in your student evals, tell me if you like the textbook. So I know, and I've been told before they hate it. So I, I pay attention. Right. And I also tell them, if I say the last group said that this was useful in their evals, just so students don't think I'm, I'm, you know, picking it out. I also too will buy the textbook myself. I, I won't always use the publisher free one. I feel like I want to be able to say, no, I spent that hundred dollars too yeah. um, for my students just to kind of model it. So anyway, I'll get off my textbook stool. No, I love it. No, and 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 having students bring their book to class, and which you said, everybody, I said, let's all turn to page fifty-two, and then in small groups even share. But I, I have another activity that really helps people get into their reading because I think it helps students be successful. You know, I mean, we, we lost a lot of students during COVID. You just look at the statistics. Oh my goodness every single college across, and we lost at both community colleges and four-year colleges. And, and we lost, uh, and, and we need to get people back and we need to get their confidence back. And, and whether you're still Zooming or online or whether you're back last night at Chico State, we were all thrilled our first night on campus, no mask. And everyone went, oh, that's what you look like. And it was, it was a great time at my class last night. But I have everybody bring bring to class your textbook and often once or twice maybe during the period we will turn to it and they'll share it and i've even picked out like favorite quotes and i type them up and i cut them out in little strips right and i put them in a i just buy like tupperware you know little round like little storage baskets right and we i get them in small groups of four and somebody pulls a quote out and reads it and they all turn to it and discuss it it's a great way to help especially if you have students that are poor readers or struggling with the reading to get that feedback with their classmates and get them into the textbook and and then it, it just adds so much so it's it's fun to do that with whether it's a textbook or a, another kind of a novel or paperback or whatever it is yeah so fun yeah, I love that. Um, I love that idea, and I I'm curious. Um, so I mean, there's so many, and and we're we're like on the edge of our seats waiting because it's April 1st when we're going to find out are we going to go to masks optional at our university because the K through 12 system in Maine has um, has done that already, and uh, we've got two daughters and in those system and they're, you know, they're, and, and most of the students have gone to taking them off. Uh, like it's like 99%, you know, to the, <laughs> for the most part, but I'm thinking about like all these like changes that have, you know, occurred going into the pandemic, coming out of the pandemic and the masking, and then like some of the, yeah. the, the transitions with some of those things, like as you think about like teaching techniques and how they have had to change to accommodate some of the shifts in student behavior, like what are some of the techniques that um, maybe you've shared in your workshops or that you're doing in the classroom to help faculty and other educators like learn more about the changes they need to make? Well, you know, I, 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 you caught me on the spot here on that one. <laughs> I think, I think, I think actually what I'm, 
I think one of the things, and I'm going to do kind of a little shift here. Yeah. I think before the pandemic, some people were clinging to their old ways. Like, I don't really need this. You know, they were clinging to strictly lecture, uh, office hours at the end. Do I really need to do this student engagement stuff? You know, and I think what, if you know, I always say out of every bad situation, something good is going to happen, you know. And I think that one of the things the pandemic did is when people were forced to all of a sudden have to do a different format, have to meet their students a different way. It did force people to rethink engagement activities. How do I involve people? How do I connect with them through Zoom or online? And guess what? That's what we have to do when we're meeting face-to-face too. We don't want to go back to you stand and deliver method but how do I engage students and there's so many different things I love about zoom where you can drop people into small groups and have them do pair share guess what you could do that in the classroom too and so I think that's that whole idea of looking at not only just engagement but then getting that um, interaction back we have um, so as we come back into the either the physical classroom and that's the other thing too I think we have to recognize the, the words out, students want to meet face to face. I mean, that tends to be, I mean, for a while, people are going, oh, this is the future of education. We're all going online. Well, guess what? Most of the students didn't like that. I mean, they, you know, they want to be back. They want that interaction. They want to see each other. But most of all, let's remember what they really want is interaction in the classroom. They don't want to come into your classroom and just sit for 50 minutes and hear you talk. They want to be involved, whether you hand out, I would say, problem. Here's here's an issue. How might you solve it? Let students brainstorm. Let students bring in different, um, help them with critical thinking and considering different ideas in a very respectful way. learning how to, like, it's gotten so political during pandemic, learning, okay, wait a minute, let's go back to ground rules on discussions. And how do we hear each other and be respectful and not, you know, attack, but actually try to put yourself in another person's shoes and hear their point of view, and then think about how in responding, you know, having genuine conversations. So maybe that is the advice is, is that it takes us back to some, um, some basics of communication, basics of respectfulness, and basic ways to increase that interaction um, in a meaningful way. Students hate busy work. I hate busy work. How do we do that in a meaningful way, engage our students in our content, but also with each other and what they bring to the classroom? Which, um, if I could just add one more thing, our students come from such diverse backgrounds, help them value the background they bring in and at the same time, let's grow. <laughs> Bringing what you've got to the classroom, but let's grow with that experience and learn from each other. I don't know if I answered your question, but. Oh, you did it. I'm gonna edit this out. I just went, I saw Lauren was gonna jump in and then she didn't, so you're good. Okay, I'll edit this out. So no, it, no it's really interesting. And, and I'm, I'm wondering if you could expand a little bit on, um, on what you were sharing about, you know, so students coming from all these different uh, different backgrounds and, and in so much of your research and your writing, you talk about um, some of those variables and how that impacts their, their learning experience, how prepared they are to come in and engage and, and to be safe, uh, feeling safe to engage in all those ways. And one of the things that's central to how we teach leadership is 
Um, you know, and I, I'm a broken record about this on the podcast because it was some of the early research I did in my own scholarship, which was um, I was investigating like what are the teaching strategies most often used by leadership faculty, and lo and behold, like more often than not, and it was the same at grad and undergrad levels. It's it's discussion. We're a dialogical discipline. Like we have to talk about leadership because we want to learn about the experiences that you've had that I've had good bosses, bad bosses, good cultures, bad cultures, good teammates, bad organizations, whatever, you know? And so we have to, it's our responsibility as leadership educators to create a safe space, brave space, psychological safety in the classroom. And part of that is, you know, what are some techniques that we might include to, you know, uh, to model inclusivity And, and in doing all that, a lot of it tends to be just modeling, like making sure that you know, uh, if I haven't heard from Lauren in a while saying, oh, hey, Lauren, I haven't heard from you in a while. Do you have anything to share? But it's it's deeper than that. And I know that some of the research and some of the strategies that you've talked about, that you talk about in both your books yeah. is about bringing in all the voices in the classroom and but taking into consideration, I mean, I, some of the things I just said are really surface level. There's a deeper level to that. And I'm curious for you and some of the research that you've done, Kathleen, like what, what are some strategies maybe that that come to mind for bringing in and creating that that safety for mm-hmm. students that are maybe first generation or ESL yeah. or I mean there's all these so many factors that that you're yeah. you're you're an expert in I'd, I'd love to or maybe some go-to techniques that you use to maintain safe yeah. spaces in the classroom. Well, I you know and I, I love what you say like go deeper, but you know what you have to start at the beginning. It, you will never get to the go deeper if you don't start at the at the beginning at the at the small place. So, um, you know, helping, you know, even starting with, it sounds so like, oh, really? That's important? Yes, it is. Knowing students' names, but also helping them learn each other's names. So I use nameplates because nobody wants to wear a name tag or, you know, there's ways to make sure if you're doing something online, they're, they're, the name comes up. But being able to, and then I, I break students up into small groups like of three where we're sit, they're sitting and little pods of three, but facing the front. So when I'm talking, but then they can turn to each other. I'll say, turn to your neighbor and share this. This, But the thing I noticed about students is when they come in, they always sit in the same space if you let it go. And as someone who is, say, brand new, first generation, doesn't nobody anybody else, boom, where do they go? Where do they sit? Or they get set, you know, they don't meet anybody else in campus. So I've created a way where each time students come in, there's there's a little number or there's a you know you're just sitting with your color you know like blues reds yellows today or you know and I mix them up so they get an opportunity to meet other people and believe it or not I start with the the class will say oh you're sitting with someone new today okay before we start class we're going to go go in your little circle and share what was your favorite toy when you were a child very non-threatening pretty easy to do or candy favorite candy favorite toy but they you know they all of a sudden there's laughter there's introduction oh i I like that i like to look you know whatever this candy bar was oh i used to buy baby roots too and there's this laughter and all of a sudden it's just this um you know it's kind of like a way to start right and then i have some activities i share in my book where we get a little bit deeper where we write a i am from poem and it takes like 10 minutes out of your class so people that are all like oh no i have so much content for cover you know what if, if it take 10 minutes out of your class to people write a little something and share about their background that's going to help your students feel more included that they belong, that they learn something about their classmate that maybe helps them make a connection, do it because that enhances. Now, 
you know, I just talked about my favorite candy or toy as a child, but now I want to talk about, hey, did you get that number four on page? You know, did you get that fourth question that he assigned us out of chemistry, blah, blah, blah. You know, it just opens that door of comfort and feeling, feeling like you belong and that you're valued in the classroom. And um, I think that that along with as a, as a professor having if you haven't learned about it, please do that growth mindset, uh, the research by Carol Dweck, and that whole growth mindset back to that appreciation that you belong here, you have a right to be here, and I'm glad you're here. And guess what? You can you can grow in your academic. I mean, August Wilson has a fabulous quote that I have up in my office, and it says, it ain't nothing to have no starting place in the world. You start from where you find yourself. And so when I'll have a student say, oh, you know, Dr. Gabe, I, I didn't do this. I didn't have that. I had horrible grades in high school. I'll say, it doesn't matter. What matters is right now, and let's go from here. You can do it. And so helping your students have that safe place where they can come and talk to you, share things with you, talk to a classmate. You might not be the person they talk to, but that safe place that you're not going to be ridiculed, made fun of, or mocked in class. You're going to start that small group of sharing. If you're, you know what, I know there's people out there, if students that when you're going to call on them, their heart starts beating. They're nervous. Oh, she's calling on me, you know. So I also do a thing in my class, and I want to share this. It's very hopeful where you can have a pass. Everybody in class gets a free pass. So I do a cold call where I try to randomly call on different people to make sure no one's left out. And if they're really nervous, they can pass. But guess what? If you let students share with their neighbor first what they are thinking, then you say, okay, let's have a few. Let's share with the whole class a couple of things. When you call on someone, I say, you can tell me what you think or what what have your neighbor said. And half the time people will go, well, she's sad, or he said, you know, but it's that, it's that getting comfortable in the class. Halfway through the semester, I see students so much more confident in speaking out or sharing something or even asking more questions um, that they're something that they're confused about or want to learn more about. So I would say start small, create that, that safe space of, of, um, uh, of belonging and and then and then it, it keeps growing and you get to a deeper scale and you know you're talking about leadership Dan and, and Lauren I, you can be a leader within your little three groups so like when they're let's say if it's a bigger group of four students I'll say well pick someone who you want to share what your group decided on boom all of a sudden that person gets to be the leader of their four but you know what that grows pretty soon you're the leader of eight are you the leader of the classroom or I'm going to represent you know it can grow from there but start small and and give the students that space and time to grow we're just having such a ball with the way that you're describing this because it's so directly correlated with how we teach what we teach and like the culture that we try to create in our classrooms is and the the sense of community building in the classroom. And um, one of the most profound things I ever heard anybody say in our discipline, and I've talked, and I, and this is, I've definitely mentioned this on the podcast before, but I um, had a chance to see Edgar Schein speak once at an ILA conference. He's kind of like the godfather of organizational culture. Um, and uh, had, and I, I asked him a question about organizational culture and something to the effect of like, there's like a standing room only room at a conference at this big global conference. And I was like, you know, if you could just change one, th if you just could do one thing that would change an organization's culture, like what would it be? You know, and he looked at me just like directly out of all these people. And he just, you know, like 
eye contact in this huge room. And he's like, if you're trying to change the culture, you're doing it all wrong with one thing is like, you have to change processes if you're going to change cultures. And it like changed the way I thought about culture for the rest of my rest of my life. It was one of these like cathartic moments. And it's, it's because like the process of what you do to build community in your classroom is going to be a direct like reflection and like the students are going to reciprocate what you do. And like all of these activities that you're talking about, about like getting them to talk to each other and like learn about each, like they're not just another student in the class, they're another person in this world that you can share this learning experience with. And like thinking about one of the, one of the things, I don't know if you're familiar with this Kathleen from, from your work, but something that we talk about a lot in our own like groups and teams classes and leadership education is Tuckman's stages of group development, which is like forming, storming, norming, performing. And so I'm, I'm thinking about like this in a classroom, like, okay, forming, like, all right, everybody registered for the same section. We got that covered. All right. But the storming, you know, and the norming, that is all the activities that you do as a mm -hmm. faculty member, getting the students to get to know each other, to be comfortable with each other, because that's going to get them to the performing stage where like, you know, you're at week six or seven of the class and you can't shut the students up. And it's not because they're off topic. It's because they're so on topic and they're so excited about being a member of your classroom that it just works. And we heard the same kind of thing from, um, we had this gentleman, David Franklin on our podcast last year. He wrote a book about a statistics class that's taught at Harvard that also used a lot of these same types of techniques to build like an insanely high level of community amongst the learners in the classroom and the teacher yeah. and, the, and the faculty member, like he's in tune, he knows what he's doing, but like from an outsider looking in, you're like in a statistics class. Are you kidding me? But it's like you can do it in any discipline if you if you if you make the time for it yeah. and you know and it's it's all about the process orientation. It, I think. it is. It is the process, and I I just want to add one other thing because everybody is challenged by this because so many of our students have phones, right? So one of the things I do in my classroom is I have everyone like we're going to learn to be present for each other, and and that's another thing is in that building community saying you know it's really important to be present at the moment for the next 50 minutes. And we'll then we'll take a break so everybody can run out and see what emergency might be on their phone. But everyone's gonna put their phones in their backpack off their desk so that we have that eye contact. So we talk to each other, so we're present for each other. And, and I, when I give the reasoning behind it and how important it is to be respectful to the people in your group, People go, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And I'll even say like, well, have you ever been talking to someone and the phone rings and they turn around, and start talking to someone else? How did you feel, you know, like outside of class? And people say, well, I felt like just dissed. I just felt horrible. I'm like, right. So for the next 50 minutes, we're not going to diss anybody. We're going to be respectful. We're putting our phones away and we're going to build that community with each other. And I'm very clear with my students. And I think we should be that what the goal here is, is that we develop a sense of community, even in a statistic class or a chemistry class or a biology or social science, a history class, an education class, whatever it is, I don't care the topic. We're going to, we're going to build a sense of community that we belong together here. We're all part of, of this mission of learning and what we're going to do with our learning. I love that the strategies you shared and the philosophy you share a, a, around teaching is so like encouraging and supportive and inviting because I, I agree wholeheartedly. If you, if students don't feel welcome in that space, they're not going to open up to learning by any stretch. And, you know, and I, I, Dan and I think have been playing like virtual double Dutch in trying to jump in and comment because, you know, like we, we agree. We're like, yes. And, 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 you know, before the show I was sharing with Dan, like, you know, I, I, 
all of the things that you talk about in your books are thing and the strategies you've shared today are things that I kind of picked up along the way. And I'm like, man, I wish when I started teaching, somebody just handed me like all of your books and said, here you go, <laughs> read these and you'll be good. Um, but I think it just speaks to those ideas have spread and shared. And I think you're right about the pandemic. They have exacerbated some of those issues or, or some of those things that, that were happening before. Now it's like people are being forced not only to rethink their engagement, but also increase their use of technology. And it's not enough to say I'm an expert in this place. It's got to be you're an expert, but you also got to know technology because students aren't really... Um, buying what you're selling, if either you're not open about your use of technology or if you're not trying to, to use technology. But, but I think you're right. The pandemic definitely changed our interaction um, with each other. The other thing I'd like to say is I love how when they come in the class, like I actually, when my students come in the door, I say, hey, how are you? And if I can greet them by their name, I do. And then I also say like, what's going on? What's going well? Where do you need encouragement? And I felt silly doing it, but they overwhelmingly say they like that I don't just jump into material. I check in with them, see how they're doing, share a little bit about myself. And then I always like have a slide that says smooth transition. And it, it just says, okay, smoothly, we're going to transition into our coursework and it has them rolling every single time they see it depending on what class but yeah. I'm like smooth transition you know into yeah. whatever we're teaching because it, it it makes them feel like that we are people in this space working um so I you know I love some of those ideas you share and agree with the other thing I agree with is the growth mindset piece the thing that kind of checked me was like, I was talking to my high schooler one day and I was like, you know, how do your teachers bring in PowerPoint? And when they use PowerPoint, what do you, and he's like, PowerPoint, like, we don't use that. We do all of these things. And I was like, oh, okay. And it made me realize that some of the tools that we use in college, they're not using in K through 12. And we're expecting them over the summer to shift to all of these when for almost 10 years, they've been doing things completely differently. Mm -hmm. And it made me step back and think, I kind of have this mantra that like my, you know, like trait theory isn't changing in leadership development. However, how I teach it has to change. And so I've always, you know, and I, and I can't apply everything, but I've always got to be mindful of, of how students are learning and how can I take it and adapt it to the material or the, the learning outcomes or the things that I need to be to cover. So like you shared a lot of that. I agree, but it's how do we get the academy to start doing this, right? One of the things that led me to write a book called, and I, and I struggled with the title, Creating the Pathway to Success in the Classroom, because I, my first title was, was going to be a little different. But I came to that because I was thinking about retention, graduation rates, student involvement. I mean, just success. I mean, you could say, well, graduation rates is just for this. No, it's it's when you put a lot of time and money into college and then you leave without a degree or you drop out earlier, it can be so devastating on that person's life, on the family, but also in our society because it becomes so important in job seeking or in just what you're doing to, to have, to finish those studies, to finish that, get to the ultimate of the college degree. But um, when I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, so much emphasis uh, has been placed just on faculty, I mean, on, on 
uh, other places uh, around the college, other, and, and that's not that they're not important, they are. But when you, you, know, you think about housing or financial aid, or you think about um, the tutoring um, center or the other, you know what I mean, the, the student professional side of it is extremely important. But faculty can't just say like, oh, okay, just, well, hey, uh, you're having problems with my class, just, just go over there to uh, the learning center. Whoa, whoa, which might be, I'm sorry, some of our campuses are quite large, you know, three, but five blocks, 10 minute walk away or whatever. And I thought, you know, faculty absolutely have to be um, part of this whole process. And, um, and, and just what you were saying, learn about your teaching techniques and what you do. And so we need to work together we need to share with information uh, with each other. Like you said, you go to your librarian and he, they help you out or I'll go over to the writing center and say, hey, I've assigned this pretty big writing assignment. Here's what it looks like. And here's what I'm looking for. So that when a tutor is working with someone, we're in it together, like we're partners together. Let's not just cut off. And so I think having faculty recognize they're a key part of this whole they're just so important in student success. You just can't pass it off to counselors or academic advisors or these other places. While they are extremely important too. faculty, hello, we're part of it. And we've got to, and we can do so much in our classrooms during that time or in that course meeting that we have with students or even in our um, office hours. Uh, I set up appointments at, during class you know, and line people up. So that, so I'm not sitting there going, hmm, I wonder if they'll stop by. I've already made appointments. So it's, um, it's, it's can be uh, uh, just recognized as a faculty member, as a professor, assistant professor, an adjunct lecturer, whatever, how important you are in this whole process and in the students' lives. Yeah, definitely. It, it's fun, you know, why does the why does the chemistry classroom and I'm just picking on chemistry because my dad's a chemical engineer, but why does the chemistry classroom have to be the scary place on campus? Why can't it be an extension of the welcoming and engaging community that's, that's on right. the rest of the campus, you know, that is maybe curated a little more by our academic advisors and our student affairs professionals, maybe more so than than faculty. T totally agree. And and I feel like we could we could keep talking about about all this all day. I, I want to make sure that um, our listeners know about where where can they get your books and where can they get information about your consulting work? Oh, thank you for asking. So the, the probably the most direct way is to go right to the stylist. Um, they're the publisher stylist website, but I believe okay. it's also listed in other places. Um, and just, you know, type in uh, my book title or Kathleen Gabriel, Kathleen Gabriel books, you know, and, and it'll come up and I think on the webpage. And then um, uh, e easy way to contact me is either through my Chico State email, which is also on the webpage on, okay. on the Chico State webpage, or I also uh, have I worked at University of Arizona for 14 years. So Kay Gabriel at, you know, u.arizona.edu um, is also a, a quick way. And so I, you know, um, give me a call. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I will <laughs> put, put, all, we'll put all that. So, yeah, yeah, okay, well. yeah. We'll put and, all that uh, information in the show notes so that sure. our uh, our listeners can make sure to be able to to contact. And as you, you know, I love to I love to go to college campuses and 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 what I think is so important is um you know like I know you had workshops at your university and other places too. What's really important I think is that a lot of faculty want to see how it works. So I try to do um, 
not just give examples, but actually practice what I preach and, and do it that way where we practice some examples so that, you know, teachers get nervous too about trying new techniques and they get nervous like, oh, can I do this? And so being having and faculty development places, which a lot of campuses have um, to be able to practice it first before you do it in front of a group of 100 students or 50 students or a smaller class, 30 students. Absolutely. Yeah, we had and we absolutely enjoyed your visit at at uh, at, at Southern Maine uh, several years back. It can definitely uh, definitely a plug for for you, Kathleen. So thank thank you so much again for for joining us today. We're so grateful for your time and um, and the leadership and the faculty development that you provided uh, you know across your career. And definitely wish you the best of luck as you continue continue that work and and beyond. And again, congratulations on the professor emeritus status. Oh, as well. thank you so much, and thank you so much for having me. I've thoroughly enjoyed our visit this morning. Our pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Leadership Educator Podcast. Remember, you can download all our episodes on all available podcast platforms. And when you go, please make sure you rate us five stars, as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. That's right, Laura. And we also invite you to interact with us on Twitter at lead. Educator Pod, that's L-E-A-D-E-D-U-C-A-T-O-R-P-O-D, and on LinkedIn by searching for the Leadership Educator Podcast. You can also follow us on LinkedIn by name and on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Underscore Leadership, and Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss Laura J-B. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. And a wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matthew White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies now at the University of South Carolina. You can check him out at www.mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our listeners. During the season, you will hear episodes featuring International Leadership Association members working globally to drive leadership education. Visit ilaglobalnetwork.org slash podcast for more information and to join the association. And finally, this podcast would not be possible without our chief partner, the Association of Leadership Educators. Please check out the ALE and all it has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. We hope you will listen to our next episode wherever you get your podcasts.